Education Trends is brought to you by our friends at VMO Education. VMO works with higher education institutions to develop and implement income-based finance programs on their campuses. Want help designing an ISA program? VMO has you covered. Check out the link in our show notes to learn more about how VMO partners with and designs ISAs for world-class higher education institutions. And now, on to education trends. Daniel Bainbridge has been an academic her entire life, earning a bachelor's degree from the University of Pennsylvania and following that with a PhD from Yale. Danielle is currently a postdoctoral fellow at Northwestern University, where she is continuing her research in African-American studies and theater, as well as beginning a professorship. And when she's not busy doing all of that, Danielle also serves as the host of Origin of Everything, a web series hosted through PBS Digital Studios. Throughout her studies, and especially through her web series, which she researches and writes in addition to hosting, Danielle has seen exactly how students learn and how teaching in a university setting compares to producing educational content that is available free of charge to anyone with an internet connection. Full disclosure here, Danielle and I have known each other since high school and have been close friends for nearly 15 years. But in this conversation, we put the reminiscing on hold for a minute to get into the nitty gritty of how education has changed and where it's going next. Here's our conversation. Well, first of all, thank you for joining us on Ed Trends, Danielle. I appreciate it. Why don't you introduce yourself, tell us your name, what you do, and a little bit about what you're working on. So my name is Danielle Bainbridge. I'm new faculty at Northwestern in the departments of African-American studies and theater and just got the news that I also am faculty in performance studies. So I'm rounding the corner on those three things. I just finished my PhD from Yale in African-American studies and American studies. And I spend most of my time doing research on African-American history from the 19th century onward. I think a lot about disability, slavery, race, and gender and how they sort of intersect at different moments in history and performance history. And then outside of my academic work, I also host a web series online for general audiences. So I write about underrepresented or undertold histories, and I uh, pitch that. It's for free. You can find it on YouTube. And I do that sort of to do more outward-facing scholarship that isn't just about my in-classroom work or my academic research, but also reaches sort of a broader base of people. For as long as I've known you, and we've known each other for a very long time, you've always been an academic and you've always loved school. What is it about school and learning that has like made you who you are? What about learning did you love and do you still love? Yeah, it has been a long time since we were 14. I think for me, school has always been a place where you could explore a lot of different interests with relatively... Yeah, I'd say relatively low stakes. So if you became passionate about something, you could explore it just for the sake of exploring it, whereas you don't necessarily get that same encouragement to do that kind of learning, say, at a job or when you're going you know, to buy groceries or you're doing other sort of tasks that are necessary to, to make your life go forward. They're more practical based. And even though school is really, really practical in terms of getting knowledge and skill sets that you're going to use for the rest of your life, it's also a place where if I someday looked up and said, oh, I want to learn about statistics. I don't necessarily want a job in statistics, and statistics doesn't pay my bills, but I just want to learn about it. You're free to do that. So I think I always was excited about school because it was a place where all of these really disparate bodies of knowledge were housed, and I could just kind of go wild and and get into what I was into. By the time I was getting to college, I think that that's the age where school became the most 
sort of panic inducing for me because that was the point where I thought, oh, you have to pick a major and you have to think of one thing that you're good at and how you want to use that skill for the rest of your life. It felt like the rubber hit the road very early because <laughs> it's like you're 18 or 19 and all of a sudden you have to kind of make this huge decision. Whereas before that school was just exploration to me. It was always entertaining, I guess. And we took a lot of classes together. So I guess you could t- kind of attest to this is that they're just it just felt like being lab all the time. You just do what you wanted to do. And I mean, yeah, you'd take tests and whatever, but you could still go to the library and just read up about something if you felt like it. So I liked it. And then once I got to college and things got very serious, that was a very steep learning process. But, you know, I made it through. (laughs) (laughs) Tell me about the transition from student to professor to teacher to teacher's aide to TA, because you did all that kind of very quickly in quick succession. You were all of a sudden a student and then you were a teacher. So what is that transition like and what made you want to do that, I guess? So towards the end of college, I was interested in going to grad school. I was also interested in not acquiring a lot of debt. So that's maybe something that people don't necessarily always say, but I'll be honest, I had already signed a lot of loans for undergrad. I didn't necessarily want more loans going to graduate school. And so I was looking into different programs that would utilize my majors, which were English and theater. And I also was doing independent research and thinking about Black history and U.S. history and Caribbean history. So my thought process was I want a degree that will utilize my skills in research and writing whether that was going to be an MA or an MFA or a PhD. And I didn't know this at that age, but I was told by my professors that PhDs, you could get funding. So I thought, oh, that's a great idea. I love research. I love doing independent work. I I love being driven by my own interests. And PhD is basically six years of independent work. And that felt great to me. So I signed up and I thought if I could find a place that would fund it, I would want to do it. So I applied in my senior year. I ended up at Yale that funded it and funded my PhD work. So I ended up going there. I didn't think a lot about teaching in the beginning, to be quite frank, which I think people are surprised at now because they think it sounds crazy that someone would sign up for a degree where the main source of employment is to become a professor and you weren't thinking about teaching. But the pitch that I had that was appealing to me was the idea of being alone in a carol or in an archive or sort of sequestered on research leave and doing my work. And I didn't think a lot about students. I thought like that was the thing that they were going to make you do to get the thing I wanted, which was money to research and time to research. In my third year, all of a sudden that bill came due because they told me I had to TA a class. And I found it very unnerving. I think I stood up in front of my class for the first time and my voice cracked. And yeah, I was. I said, my name is Danielle Bainbridge and it cracked in the second half. And then that's when I was like, I've lost them. They know that I'm, it's, it's a <laughs> ruse. They know that, yeah, I was, <laughs> I was like, they've figured me out. They know. I think I would also say because I didn't feel much older than my students. I was 24 at that time and they were, you know, like 19 or 20. So I was like, oh, what authority do you have here? But I think the thing I learned about teaching is that there were days where I felt like I got along really well with my students and everything went well socially, but I didn't feel like they learned that much because I got sidetracked. And then there were days where I felt like they learned a lot, but I was basically just talking to myself because I was very much just speaking as if no one was there. I thought, okay, I'm just going to do this as if I was by myself. And the real trick to teaching to me was to combine my enthusiasm and my 
eagerness to be personable with my students and to communicate with them with my dedication to the subject and try to find some middle ground so that I could let them in. Because it's very different than when you're by yourself and you're just pursuing an interest. When you're by yourself, you're literally, you're motivating yourself to go in whatever direction you want. When you're with a student, you have to look up and around and figure out what they want and what they need. And that was quite an overwhelming task to me. I will say as time went on, I felt more confident as a teacher because I realized that teaching is not the other thing, as I said before. It is the thing that you are supposed to be doing. You're supposed to not only be sort of motivating yourself out of pure curiosity, but you're motivating yourself. You're doing all this work, all this research to share it with someone, that you have an audience, that you have people who are interested in learning about what you're talking about and then thinking about what you're thinking about. And if you're only there thinking about yourself, then you've kind of already lost sight of what the point of this whole endeavor was. So I think teaching made me a better scholar because it also changed the way I was writing and the way that I was thinking about my work. And it changed it from sort of that pure self-motivation to well, what does this contribute to people around you, to the world around you? So thanks, students who put up with me that first semester. It was a rocky semester, but we made it through, all of us together. I'm sure they graduated by now. That was a while ago, but like still. Yeah. I feel like for you, your journey through the education system is kind of the traditional in the sense that like you went to college, you went to undergrad, got your master's, PhD, and now you're teaching. And I feel like more and more these days, students are being a little more unconventional in how they're getting their education. Have you noticed that too? And how do you kind of adjust how you teach to a more unconventional student? I definitely have noticed that more and more, especially because I think at the point that, I mean, when we were both going to college, there was a lot of emphasis on going the traditional route and I don't think maybe to the detriment of of us and some of our peers that there was a lot of encouragement about time off or taking a different road or figuring out sort of what you were going to do long term. Because, I mean, by the time I was 17, people were telling me I had to figure out what my major was in college. And this was before I even got there. And then the idea was that the major that you chose would have a corresponding career And if it required a grad degree, you would get it right after, and then you would just go and start that job, and that would be the end of it. And so when we were in high school, I mean, you remember this, but for people who don't know us personally, by the time we were 17, most of the people, like most of our teachers, thought I should be pre-med. And I wanted to be pre-med, and I went to college pre-med, which is like (laughs) kind of a bizarre, (laughs) (laughs) kind of is a funny thing to look back now. But I think, you know, the sentiment was like, this is a smart move. You know, you could you could get a good career out of it. Like you could become a physician. Like if you want to keep on with this like acting, writing thing, like do that on the side. But like you should really get a, a, in scare quotes, real job. And, you know, the decision was, it felt like it was made about me, but not for me. It was based on, you know, like, these are the grades you need to do this thing. These are the tests you need to take to do this thing. You've done that. So do it. And so when I went to college, I was pre-med, but quickly found my way back into theater and into theater classes on what I called my side major, my minor, I guess is what they call them. And then by my sophomore year, I hated it. I mean, I just hated it. I didn't, I felt like very disengaged. I didn't care much about what was happening in my lecture courses. And as a truly dramatic person, I stood up halfway through a bio lab 
and we were doing the lab. I, the only person I feel bad for in the story is my lab partner because she really got the short end of it. I stood up in the lab. I walked up to my TA and I said, don't even bother to grade this because I'm not coming back. I'm leaving the major. And she looked at me and was like, what are you doing? You don't seem to realize what's going on here. You should finish at least the day. And I was like, no, why bother? I'm definitely not coming back. It was the middle of the week. It was like maybe a Thursday. Like it had no particular importance, but it felt like I needed to leave. And that made the second half of my sophomore year of college very stressful because the thought process of being on this real rigid track that I was supposed to have picked by the time I was 17 and now I was off the track, I thought I was already used up or washed up or whatever kind of metaphor you could use for that. And to me, I see a lot of my students reflect that same thinking now. And I'm, and sometimes I just feel like very heartbroken for them because I'm like, what are you talking about? You're 19. <laughs> You're not even partially used up yet. You have so many second act, third act, fourth, fifth acts. And I think when people are taking more unconventional routes, because ultimately I redirected myself by the end of sophomore year because I thought even a semester without a major seemed like this huge transgression. But I mean, I also didn't necessarily come from a family where everyone went straight through. My mom was in law school when I was a kid. So it's I knew on a subconscious level that it was possible to do other ways. But I was told by you know, our high school and by my college right, advisors. From the system. That if you, exactly. If you don't go straight through, then you've you've kind of fallen off the, the boat of opportunity, which to me seemed kind of bizarre. And so now that I'm I'm on the other side of the desk, so to speak, I like to encourage my students to realize that there's a lot of opportunities and there's a lot of trajectories that they could take. How do you to go into one of your uh, second or third or fourth acts, you last year premiered Origin of Everything, your web series. And that is an educational show where you discuss like a topic in depth and it's free, like you said, anybody can watch it. How do you feel that that kind of educational programming and content is shaping how people learn today? So I'd say not just Origin, but just thinking about like free online education in general, but then, and also thinking about web content or podcasts or what we're doing right here. People in general, as you know, it's the human condition, we're curious in general, we want to learn things, we want to think about things at a deeper level. And usually what prohibits people from doing things like that is either lack of access or lack of opportunity. So it's not that someone who isn't going to pay $50,000 a year to go to college or take out a huge loan isn't still equally intelligent, equally curious, equally daring, and intellectually brave. It's just maybe they either haven't had the chance to do it or they don't have the resources to do it. So when I make online education stuff or when I make videos or when I make, you know, if I write an article and I publish it and I want to make sure it's free – it's because I'm operating with that assumption is that the same level of content that I would give to my students who either through financial aid or through family help or through scholarship have been able to get access to the classroom at the places I teach, I want to give that same level of content to people who are just searching online with no risk to them and only reward. And I think that it's really great because the range of people who watch the show and the range of people who read the stuff I put out range from probably elementary school to retiree, I could safely say, because I've had 
parents who say, you know, my kids watch this and every time a word that comes up they don't know, we we Google it and we end up in the dictionary and, you know, maybe they didn't get quite everything, but they liked your t-shirt. And I'm like, that's good too. Like that level of curiosity at that age is fantastic. And then sometimes, you know, people say I'm 75, you know, I'm retired for the last several years, but I'm still eager to learn things or I still, you know, I do the crossword every day and I also watch your video because it helps me keep my mind active and I want to learn something new and, and learn about culture and learn about history and learn about sort of our shared collective story. And I think that's also awesome. There's a good chunk that falls in the middle. Like I'd say the majority of viewers are college age or post-grad age. So like 18 to 34, I'd say is the majority of people who watch. But I still, I mean, even though I love everyone who watches and, and comments with kind things, but the people on the tail end of things, you know, really young and, and older viewers, I still love that too, because it kind of confirms what I'm saying is people naturally want to think about something intensely. And we've kind of structured our lives in a sense where school is usually the place where you get to think about something very intensely. But it doesn't mean that once you leave school or once you're done with your formal education, that you don't still want to do that work. So even though, I mean, I don't know if anybody else liked book reports, but, you know, even though you were being motivated to read a ton of books when you were younger by book reports or, or by the book fair that came to your high school, not your high school, that was more like elementary school, right? Mm -hmm. Like Scholastic yeah, Book Fair. Yeah. So those sort of things <laughs> that would motivate kids to read. It doesn't mean that people still don't want great book recommendations when they're 55. They still want to know something great to read on the train or they want to read something on their evenings off. So I think that people still have that motivation. It's just we've kind of sequestered some of that access to when you're in school. So you don't necessarily have access to university libraries if you're not attached to university. But if you watch a show like the one I make, you could have access to all of those articles because I put all the links up. So it's just satisfying that need. How do you, you have your toe kind of in both worlds in the traditional education realm and in this new realm of like free online educational content. How do you see the future of education kind of evolving, growing and blending the two together or are they going to be completely separate? Do you envision a future where maybe the four-year degree doesn't mean as much as it does or it did when we were in college or high school? Well, I think in some ways I see these worlds both growing and adapting to each other. So in one way, I'm a big believer in open access to university level education. I also don't necessarily know if every student should be fit into the same exact mold at the same exact age, because one student may be ready to go to college when they're 16. One may be ready to go when they're 25. One may never want to necessarily go to college or need to go to college for the things that they're interested in pursuing, but they should still all have equal opportunity to pursue those paths, which is where I think we're falling short now, is that we could acknowledge that students could take a range of shapes and sizes and opportunities and choices, but right now, most of that is getting decided by things like financial resources more than it's getting decided by whether or not students need something or want something or have the opportunity to pursue something. I do think, for me, a lot of the stuff I do for sort of open access online education stuff, I think of that more as like a supplement for curiosity, more so than I think of it as a college course. Although I do know people who make really great YouTube stuff where it is 
it is actually a college course and it's like mod one, mod two, mod three, and they make them sequentially and you could access all of them and just sit there and watch them in order. And it's the same as taking the class. Those kind of models will become more popular as time goes on, especially because I don't know. I don't know if when you were in college, you had this feeling, but there were sometimes I would look at something in a in a course pack and or online in a course pack and say, oh, I wish I could take this class, but I'm nervous if I take it, it'll affect my GPA. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for and sure. So you don't take it because right. you're thinking, oh, you're like, well, you know, this chemistry class is going to destroy me. Yeah. Yeah. So you're thinking, <laughs> OK, like maybe I would want to do this, but I want to do it in a just for the, the love of learning. I don't necessarily want to get credit for it or anything like that. I think online education and online video and online online resources kind of satisfy that same need because a lot of folks say, okay, I didn't take this class when I was in college or I wouldn't have taken this class when I was in college because I was already taking six courses or whatever, but I'm still interested to learn. And I like that idea. I like the idea of learning for learning's sake. Yeah, I mean, totally. (laughs) I feel like it's becoming easier for people to do that now, especially with technology the way it is and the resources that are available for people. It's just like a whole new world than when you and I were in high school. Oh, totally different. Very, very different. I think that that was also part of the selling point to when we were in high school, when people were talking about going to college, it was the idea of that was the only place you could ever learn again. And it was made to seem like there was just a drop-off point. Like you would never learn another thing if you didn't go. And I feel like that was maybe, I don't think maybe, I think that was the wrong message. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, like it was like you were making a bad choice if you didn't go to school. Whereas now you have so many more options. You can go to like a boot camp. You can go get your GED. You could go get like some online courses. Like it's not the be all and end all is getting a four-year degree anymore. Well, it is. I also find by the time I get students at the college level that they've also made like moral assessments of their own character based on how they do in school, which I find to be really odd. But also I find it very relatable because that's how we were taught. There was a way that people, I mean, by the time I was in high school and early college, there's a way that A students were regarded almost as like A people, that you were a better person if you were an A student than if you were a C student. There just seemed to me this incredible pressure to make those two things line up. And so when I have a student who's, you know, weeping in my office saying that they got an 89 and I'm wondering how or why we decided on a system of basically making a moral assessment of someone's character based on how they did on one paper that they turned in one day under the circumstances and with the time they had allotted. I mean, it's all somewhat arbitrary at the end of the day because the same student, you know, two weeks later could then get 100 on the paper. They could get a 61 on the same assignment. And I'm not saying that it will happen because those are huge spreads. So, you know, generally the student will get kind of in the same place. But I'm saying that circumstances around the assignment can often affect what happened. But they still have these really emotional responses to academic assessment And so I wonder if some of it is also that's some of the finger wagging we felt when we were thinking about applying to college, which was, if you don't do it, then, you know, you're not really living up to your potential. You're not living up to what we we trained you to do here. And that kind of made things seem like they were, you know, more hectic by the time I was quitting my major. Because I thought about all those finger wags. And I was like, (laughs) no. How do you think you, we can go about separating the moral equivalency that we're putting on students and the and the success that they have in school or not? Well, I'm not a huge lover of grading 
because I think that students are conditioned to think about it that way. But I have found when giving grades, the more information that you give to students that's narrative, and I actually have an episode on this called Why Do We Get Grades in School? So soft plug for that. But the more information you give students that's narrative and less about the numbers, the more they understand and the more they improve. It takes a ton of time. I'm not going to lie and say that I like relish sitting there and doing it. But if you do it in a way that's appropriate, you could give grades that actually help students improve. So, I mean, if I hand back a paper, I usually break down the percentages by, you know, whatever different sets of things. And then I make a chart. Each chart has a point assignment. Each point assignment has a rationale for, you know, if it's five points are available to this section, then I have a rationale for what five out of five looks like, four out of five, three out of five downward. And then I write a sentence next to each line explaining to the student what they got, why they got it, and how they could have fixed it. And that's excruciating. I mean, it takes forever, but they actually improve. And so to me, seeing how that system has benefited them, or sometimes, and almost always, depending on the number of students in the class, I'll write a paragraph at the end of every assignment that they give to say, this is the whole picture of why the points have added up the way they have. This is what I think you need to do for the next assignment. This is maybe how this one could have been improved, X, Y, Z thing. And it also takes a lot of one-on-one meetings. I mean, it doesn't always work though, because sometimes it's very ingrained. And I'm not going to say that students 100% of the time don't still feel that anxious, oh my God, it's a it's a 91, not a 95, or it's an 83 and not an 87. It's like, what? But they still feel that. But I think when you make it less about this sort of transparent assessment from on high and you make it more, these are the ways that you could improve. This is what happened here. You could usually alleviate some of that. I also think encouragement to to take more time is also something that students don't often get. Because sometimes, yeah, it's beneficial to be on a really tight clock if, you know, you're taking the SAT or whatever. But in other instances, I wonder exactly what that's proving. (laughs) So as long as the answer is correct, doesn't matter if they got 30 minutes versus 15. It seems some of these measurements are ones that we've decided on and then never really assessed again. So I don't know. I think it depends. It's about patience, I think, most of the time. All right. We end every interview with a lightning round. Are you into it? Okay, I'm ready. Okay. What is your favorite book that you've read in the last year and why? That's a hard question. I wish that I was faster on this one. (laughs) Pass. I'll go back to it. (laughs) Okay. Do you listen to podcasts? And if so, what do you like to listen to? I don't listen to podcasts because I'm a very visual learner, but I'm doing this because I really believe in spreading the word about good education. So... So you listen to this one is what you're saying, right? I listen to this one. There you go. (laughs) I listen to this one, but I don't normally listen to podcasts because I find it hard to absorb information if I can't see something. Now, I know you listen to music. What Mm -hmm. is on your go-to playlist? I think right now is Madonna is mostly my playlist. I don't know why. It puts me in the mood to work. It's getting me up in the morning. What else was I listening to recently? Cardi B Uh was on repeat recently. Solid, yes. Trying to float back in my memory. The National was in there. It was It's an eclectic mix. Basically anything that either makes me feel calm and at peace, like ocean waves, or really hyped up, like I'm about to go dancing. Nice. Okay, Halloween is coming up next week. What is your favorite all-time Halloween costume that you wore? Oh, that I wore? I was actually talking about this with my dad the other day. When we were in eighth grade, I was 
Quasimodo, the hunchback of Notre Dame. <laughs> and uh, I can picture it. <laughs> it went down like a lead balloon. It was a bad choice. And I stopped dressing up for Halloween for a few years after that because I was really embarrassed. Because I... <laughs> Well, I mean, I know you've seen Mean Girls, but it was essentially like that scene where I showed up and I, uh, oh my God, jeez, it's too, it's too painful to even relive. I'll tell you later. But it was, I, I dressed up like Quasimodo. What is your go-to snack food or guilty pleasure? I've been trying all these like different kinds of chips from Whole Foods that are made with different beans. So I've tried these chips today that were made with lentils. And then I tried another one that was made with black beans. Surprisingly satisfying. And they have a lot of protein. Nice. I've been snacking on the veggie chips from Trader Joe's. They taste basically oh. like nothing, but I eat them anyway. So. <laughs> I also like the veggie straws. Uh-huh, I don't uh-huh. know if you've invested in those because I like things that are long and skinny like spaghetti. Yeah, perfect. What is one of your favorite inspiring student stories? Oh, my gosh. Let's go back to the book one. I feel like I'm ready to circle back. <laughs> All right. to the book what's your one. what's what's your favorite book you read in the last year? <laughs> uh, Olio by Tehemba Jess. It's a poetry collection. Oh, okay. Yeah. Very cool. What's your favorite poem? What is my favorite poem? So it's not actually broken up that way precisely. It's I would just advise people to go read it because it would be probably a long explanation for me to say how it exactly <laughs> looks. But it's it essentially it opens up. It looks like a giant. It almost looks like a mix between a music book and like archival materials and it folds out in different points. It's also a book that I would recommend not using an ebook. I'm a big user of ebooks, but this is one that you should get the physical copy. And then it has like a narrative, a slight narrative arc. So I wouldn't necessarily pull one poem out as one that I love over another, but it follows several sets of historical freak show and sideshow performers and music performers, black music performers from the 19th and early 20th century. Sounds interesting. Okay, what inspires you? I think urgency inspires me. Like, that's the probably an odd answer, but if I go to see a show or if I'm involved in a project and it feels like the outcome is something that people really need, it feels urgent to me. That inspires me to keep working. That inspires me to keep moving forward. And I think it's also, if my students have that same sort of urgency, like they really love the subject, they really want to learn more, it makes me feel inspired. It also makes me feel as if my time is not being, you know, my time here on earth, kind of in the cosmic sense, I guess, it's not being wasted. I like to feel as if I'm doing something that matches some need that already exists, that you're filling a void. So I like that. What is your favorite just random fact that you know? My favorite random fact that I know. Yeah, like my favorite random fact is that otters hold hands when they sleep so they don't drift apart. Oh man, you stole my fact. No. (laughs) I felt like it was going to be me. (laughs) I think I was going to use that fact. Let me think of a good one. I I learn a lot of I was going to say you learn so much doing what you do. As a result of doing this series. I'm trying to think of a good one because there's just so many. I don't know if I have a favorite fact. That feels like I'm. That feels like I'm really. What's I'm really the, taking the what's easy a, road. What's a most recent fact from like one of your most recent episodes that was? Oh, we did fun. one on why we eat popcorn at the movies, and the short answer was that it was a cheap, 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 cheap snack. And during the Great Depression, concession sales actually helped keep movie theaters open. Ah, interesting. Yeah. So at first, movie owners didn't want like movie theater owners didn't want to sell concessions because they wanted movie theaters to be like live theaters where they didn't necessarily have food on the inside. But people were sneaking the stuff in and uh, turns out corn is really cheap. And when it's popped, 
it inflates so much that if you, even if you buy like a pound of corn, you could probably make a million bags of popcorn. <laughs> so they started selling it. And there you have it. And so that's a recent fact. And now we have and now we have popcorn that sells for $15 a bag. Cool. Exactly. And it probably, <laughs> I mean, if they were just to buy the corn itself and the butter, it's probably less than a dollar. Wow. So that makes me feel good. Inflation. Inflation <laughs> of both the price of the popcorn and the corn itself. Mm-hmm. Last question. Mm -hmm. If you had to give the listeners one piece of advice or one reason why you think education is important, what would it be? I would say if I was to give one piece of advice about education generally, or like a directive piece of advice for listeners, it would be to think about education as part of your whole life and not just something that's divorced or off the side. Um, I think the best plan you can make in terms of thinking about your own education or what kind of education you want to pursue or how to pursue it is to think about your life as this really complicated tapestry, this really complicated puzzle or quilt with all its separate pieces, but that they all still hang together to make one whole. Too often, I think education is thought of as like, oh, well, it's a thing that is fixed in time. It's these three years that you have to go to finish the degree, or it's this one year, or it's this, you know, this four years of high school. But the rest of your life isn't going to stop happening just because you want to do that. It's not divorced from everything else that you're interested in. It's actually just one piece of it. So when you start to think about this degree or maybe doing, you know, a boot camp or doing something on your own, think how does it fit into where your life is right now and how does it fit into the long-term trajectory of your life? What role is it going to play and why do you want to do it? And also to consider education is something that you're doing not only for yourself, but also, you know, sometimes you're doing it for your family members. Sometimes you're doing it for your kids. Sometimes you're doing it for your partner. But think about yourself in it and also don't attach all those moral assessments to you. <laughs> I mean, if it doesn't work out the first time, don't freak out. Take a moment to reassess. Think about what role it plays in your life and try again. I think the best thing you could do is be kind to yourself and move forward. And also, if you have a biology TA, who you could throw the lab back <laughs> halfway, halfway through the class. Insert some I, drama into your life. I mean, every day I think about her because I'm like, I'm sure I should probably apologize because what a what a scene. But mostly I feel like she's she learned a valuable lesson as an educator from me. The only person who got the short stick was my lab partner. Yeah. I, I hope she's soft somewhere curing cancer to screw you over. Maybe she is. I don't know. Maybe she's in med school. Probably. She just seemed like very bewildered. And I was like, you know what? This is what you got to do sometimes. You got to walk out. <laughs> Awesome. Danielle, thank you so much for joining us on Ed Trends and for, you know, putting up with me for as long as you have. Awesome, awesome. Right. Both to putting <laughs> up and to being on Ed Trends. Thanks, Danielle. Have a good rest of your night. Bye.